hey, we got donuts today. Yeah, where did um, these donuts come from? Uh, uh, it's from it's from the Slay Brothers. They brought us donuts. They had well, we, I think they just delivered had them delivered. I mean, you they realize like we we've done this like twenty something times though, and they've yeah. never brought donuts. I know that. That's that's why that's a little weird. Um, I think it bodes well. Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. This is Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits, and this is our final episode of the season. We are going to take a little break after this. It's been uh, really exciting to get here. I mean, we've we've done a lot of work. We have done a lot of work. A lot of work. A lot of research. A lot of reading. A lot of script writing. <sighs> the writing. A lot of recording. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So we're going to start by talking about themes and craft of the book. And I always like to, even though I know about themes and themology and thematicism, mm-hmm. um, I always like to defer to Trevor in this part of the discussion because I feel like he has a really strong grasp on this and then Curtis and I can just kind of jump in and make jokes and I'll just and sit here and kind of go mm-hmm, yeah we'll yeah, be the yeah. color commentators yeah I mean man Bram Stoker's Dracula what uh what a novel for sure I think what's interesting to me about Dracula is that he's doing multiple things with this book right as mm-hmm. we've kind of discussed he's exploring some of his life you know kind of vicariously through the way he structures this novel and the characters we interact with in this novel um, but I think he's also reflecting on on the times that that he was living through it's very much a social commentary yeah absolutely so of course like social commentary ends up being one of the I think one of the strongest themes or the strongest allegories in this story because we have a character of Dracula who represents this old world mm-hmm. right he's this ancient presence and the first part of the novel is all Jonathan Harker talking to Dracula like he goes out to visit Dracula because Dracula I think is looking to buy some estates yeah. in London mm-hmm. and Harker's uh I, I think he's a not a realtor like what we would think he, I, he's a lawyer like an estate lawyer right right and so he goes out to talk to to Dracula about this stuff and runs into all of the horrors of like Dracula's hospitality, which I think is, we use the term loosely, right? Um, But as he encounters this Dracula, and then Dracula moves to England, which, or London, which at this point in time, I think we can see as kind of, uh, it's not Paris, but it's, it's becoming rapidly more industrialized. It's kind of a symbol, I think, of uh, the new century, right? Or or symbol of progress, if you will. I yeah. think it's a symbol of industrialization. And also, I think yeah. from our, our discussion on Bram Stoker, we talked about the importance of London, especially to a literary yeah. uh, literary figures, including those, especially those coming from Ireland. Well, so I make it, Irish I make authors a comparison, had to go to London. I make a comparison to Paris just because right. I think that Paris for a lot of the world was like the symbol of Western civilization like a symbol of western industrialization and modernization right at least in terms of culture i would agree yes right yeah yeah. and and i think that uh i mean it was like the jewel of of western um Mm -hmm. not necessarily civilization but western modernization right was was paris but i think london uh was growing as an industrial center and was growing as this kind of um 
in this urban identity, right? This very modern city uh, that that was representative, I think, of of European modernization. Well, and following in that direction of like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and Madame Blavatsky, mm-hmm. he shows the East invading in on the West. And he shows the West as this scientific, as this industrial area. And the right. East is very full of mythology and, kind of this and magic. Mysticism. And mysticism. Which, right. which I think is, um, I think that's fairly normal for a lot of writers at this time. You look at anything in the 19th century, and, and I mean, maybe even prior, but especially in 19th century horror fiction, there's a lot of preoccupation of like Eastern mysticism. And I think some of it is because writers at this time are trying to grapple with their cultural identities to set their traditions apart from traditions in other uh, other parts of the world. Right. And so there is this kind of, I mean, call it a supremacist, um, you know, effort uh, to to basically say the the West is sim- symbolic of westernization uh, modernization industrialization and east is like this i call it a mysticism but i think it's also uh an intent to describe them as less developed right a lesser right. developed it's like a relic world. of the past right exactly yeah. there are it's exactly opposite here in the u.s <laughs> yeah i think there are some some cultural influences here too because yeah. we have um you know, imperialization was a really important force in in the 19th century, going into the 20th century, uh, especially if you're in Britain. You know, um, you think about Britain's relationship with building empire in Africa, building empire in China, building empire in um, India, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because in mm-hmm. the 19th century, I mean, they were invading India pretty hard. Uh, sure. I think that all of these, you know, forces would sit poorly with you or may not sit as well with you if you aren't trying to construct some kind of narrative yeah. about why you have a cultural imperative to imperialize these um, these countries anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. And like I don't it, think here's the thing. So I know I talked a little bit about powers of darkness last episode. Yeah. Um, and I know that I know we talked about how powers of darkness is more than probably since its structure is so vastly different and it weighs heavier on the historical figure of Dracula that it probably doesn't, um, uh, it it probably works off of an older version of the manuscript than the one that got published eventually. Sure. Um, I don't think everything with what you're saying with regard to imperialization, I don't think this is a pro-imperialist novel. And I don't want to necessarily say that Stoker himself was a pro-imperialist. Or something right, like that. right. I don't. I don't know enough about him, and I think that the biography we kind of went over doesn't necessarily suggest that. But I do think. I think that, it suggests against it, given his more liberal kind of policies and uh, potential. Well, again, liberalism in the 19th century is not liberalism in the 20th. Century. Exactly. But I think the other thing <laughs> that can point to this too is because of his changing everything when he learns about the historical figure of Dracula. This is also a commentary on Dracula, and we talked about how it's interesting that, like, um, for in Vlad Dracula's time, he was part of the West, and 
the east was the Ottoman Empire and the right. Turks pushing in on this. Right. So the boundaries kind of shifted the by the shi- time. Right. The shift to push him as as kind of more of an Eastern mysticism. But Dracula, the character in the novel, acts like, and there are passages even in the, the published version mm-hmm. that talks about how he felt betrayed because Vlad Dracula was betrayed by, you know, the Wallachian princes. He was betrayed by his own boyars. He was betrayed by people. Um, I think that betrayal historically plays into this and i think it it plays against even vlad dracula as this fighter of imperialism well i think it's also uh, dracula himself is an interesting figure because if we are talking about him being you know representative of eastern mysticism i think it's really interesting that he tries to become a modern uh englishman Right. I mean, like he owns property in London. He moves to London, I think, with the intent of staying in London. Right. Of of like transitioning over into this modern world. So in a way, he becomes this um, this transitional figure. Right. Like trying to reach from this this, uh, you know, call it a, a mystic past or a mysticist past. Right. Into a more modern future. Um, and then, if, like, the modern world's inability to, like, or, or incompatibility with him, right? Because he wants to come in and eat people and right. not necessarily yeah, the, what polite people want. The mutilation and all that, yeah. you know. You mean I come he to tell you? He's, he's like... <laughs> I mean, what, what is this country coming to? I can't impale anymore. Do you know what year it is? We don't impale. <laughs> what is this then, this fair, this corn dog? You impaled this corn this dog. Corn dog. <laughs> this corn dog. Um, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I think what this... I like, I like that in this, in this time, the corn dog is like the exemplary food of the modern world, right? Yeah. yeah. What is this stage performer hand doing if not impaling the ventriloquist dummy and making him talk. That is exactly what I did when I was in Romania. Impaling is happening all around you and you don't even see it. Look at Oscar Wilde. He impales nightly. Oh, no. (laughs) You like. You like impale. Um, I think what this allows us to do because he pulls from a historical figure, he allows us to create these parallels between these different cultures and between these different like periods in history yeah and we can reflect on them because they are both patriarchal like oh sure these are london was just as patriarchal as as romania and vlad dracula's time and i think in a way i mean stoker is kind of digging into like the difference just the 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 change in modernization you know over the the course of the century he lived in yeah you know i i i find it just really interesting that we have such a preoccupation on like the the place for magic in an increasingly literate, increasingly scientific world, right? Yeah. He seems to suggest that these two things are um, antithetical, right? They can't exist together Does in the he, same though? space. That's well, the question. But I'm that's gonna... I think that's what's so interesting because, like, Dracula himself cannot fit into the modern world. There's no real place for him. He comes in. He tries. He's, it's not for lack of trying. He though. does try, but but he's like very quickly. We find like now he's eating people, and like that's not. We're not going to sit for that. He's got to be eradicated before the end of the novel. But then there's Van Helsing who comes in as this like 
learned man, right? This person who is um, very well versed in the science, the scientific side of things, but also very well versed in like the religious or the mystical side of things. Right. And he seems to suggest like, no, you know, we can't necessarily push science forward if we lose the sense of of the mystical, the, the right. religious. Right? Well, we learn that we learn that as the novel, as they chase Dracula back to Romania, because as yeah. they get into towards his castle, all of a sudden we lose like as much as he doesn't fit in the Western culture, science and that intellectualized right. thinking and stuff don't fit as we retreat right. back into. They can't figure out. I mean, so much of the book is them trying to figure out what is going on. I would almost put Mina Dracula Harker. like like. The antithesis of Dracula would, for me, would be like Doctor Seward, who is very analytical, who is very scientific, mm-hmm. and then Van Helsing straddles between the line between the two. He's like, "Well, you've got you can't have one without the other. You right. have to have both." Yeah, there's got to be some kind of like a, a counterbalancing. I do think that it's also interesting. Which that I wish Dr. my doctors still because I do think Doctor Seward was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It could be COVID. It could also be like you have a curse. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just I did some bloodletting the other day at my doctor's office. <laughs> he's, he's still pretty in touch with you know what works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I go for my my monthly leeches. You know. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, pairing leeches with bloodletting is like whoa. <laughs> that's yeah, intense. Yeah. You could see God real fast. Yeah. Yeah. You start yeah. tasting weird things and and the room seems weird. But man, it works. No, I. But I mean, to your point, I think it's also interesting that that Doctor Seward and Van Helsing do seem to be of different generations in this book. Oh yeah. Right. Like Van Helsing is very much like older. Mm-hmm. Um, more learned, and then Doctor Seward is much younger. Um, I I think that the book definitely grapples just with. Um, I think the weight of change in the the nineteenth century, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I I I think this does this is and this speaks back to my my thesis, which we'll get back to in a few minutes, but. I think the complexity of the culture, the complexity of the things that he's saying in this novel, um, even about femininity and about sexuality and gender roles, oh, yeah. um, he flips the gender roles. Well, I feel I, like. How does he flip the gender roles? So. Because I, I, I think this is still very patriarchal. No, no, no. It is very, very patriarchal. But um, the, the fluid is received by the man. For instance, like Dracula drinks the blood, he takes the the fluid into his body. But it's predatory. It is very predatory. It's it's very. In fact, there's a scene in there. Um, I think it's in uh, early on when when Dracula first gets to England, and Lucy's being attacked. I think Mina mm-hmm. sees this out in the um, in the yard, like in the courtyard, and what she sees is like it's almost that. Shakespearean beast with two backs thing. Right. But I think she envisions or pictures like a wolf on top of Mina, which is is a it's, very predatory. It's a disturbingly. I mean, it's also, yeah, it, it's, it's really very disturbing. It's very transgressive, too. Yeah. I think one of the things. So the reason why I don't necessarily know that they that they reverse the gender roles, because I think that would. That would mean that I think the woman would have to be the the aggressor or the transgressor and not the man. I don't think in that sense, but I think there are some reversals of gender um, stereotypes or, or gender kind of uh, I characteristics. Think, I don't think. I there mean, are. I uh, I think Barbara Bedford does a really good job of explaining some of this better than I do. Um, 
and her book really goes into a little bit better than than what I can. But um, there's this idea that um, that women and men, like Mina, instead of it being a man to to counteract Dracula towards the end of the novel, the 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 men aren't the men are kind of this collective that goes after him, but it's really Mina is leading this this charge. It's her hypnotic connection, her her mental psychic connection with Dracula that's leading it. She's the one that really becomes the central figure in this story. And she becomes one of the stronger figures. And I don't think that was as done in that time period as any other. When you say that she's one of the stronger figures, like what do you mean by that? Because I I have a I guess I have a, a very different idea of Mina Harker. Like I don't see her as a two-dimensional figure at all. I've, I I see her call as a her very necessarily developed two-dimensional. Two but right. I don't know about like strong. I I worry a lot about Mina's agency in this book, because as soon as she meets Dracula, right, and Dracula starts to seduce her, she just kind of falls into um, alignment with Dracula. I mean, she chases after Dracula not necessarily because she's looking to kill Dracula, but because she's compelled to follow him. Right. Yeah. And I think that the men follow Mina in an effort to go kill him to protect her from. Yeah, I could see that yeah. from um, Dracula's influence. Now, I can't. I can't remember who actually manages to to drive the spike into Dracula. Is it? It's not Quincy the Texan because he's killed. He's the one oh, of the group right. that's killed. Yeah, he is but he gets a one. he gets a mortal shot off. I think right. that, that wounds Dracula. And then I think it's a collective effort. I think they just because he's got his gypsies with him too. That's that's helping yeah. him fight while he's well. And and so this is one of the reasons why I, I just you know Mina seems to me to Wasn't be the Mina? victim. Didn't didn't Mina I've, kill him? I almost feel like it's Mina who does drive the stake into him, but I can't remember exactly. It's been. I remember a, a in minute. the I remember in the Francis Ford Coppola version we in the movie. Probably like look this up <laughs> we should probably, yeah while i'm talking and rambling incoherently would somebody look up the novel and, and tell me who or who kills him um but i remember in the francis ford coppola version um when he made his film his, his movie based on this mm-hmm. um it's mina that follows him into the the castle and right and drives the stake and then i think she takes the sword and cuts his head off and i felt like that's interesting that was more of an elaborate death scene for him than what was presented in the novel, but right. basically it followed the novel. I, I thought she was the one that killed him in the novel, I mean, it's which was why I, I was going about this idea that it was, that helped I, swap the, you know, so I think redefine. I, for me, when I read this book and, and reflect on, on this book, I think what stands out to me is like Dracula is a very predatory uh, figure, right? Oh yeah. And yeah. I think that we, we can't necessarily divorce Dracula's predation from sexual predation because yeah. so much of this is kind of an allegory for for um you know sexual behaviors. Yeah. And jo- Jonathan uh, Harker. Jonathan Harker is who S- kills him. Stabs Dracula through the throat with a kukri knife. Well, oh, that yeah. makes sense too though. It's I mean, a, Harker's the one it's that's It's like a it's like a, a knife with kind of a crooked blade. Oh, he got him in the throat. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that does make sense to me though because Harker is the initial victim of of Dracula. He's, he's the, the initial, initial victim of, of he's Dracula. The, and, the focus of that predatory behavior. And he's behavior. also Mina's right. husband. And he's Mina's husband. Yeah. yeah. So he has to be the one to. But also, um, and a good example of that characteristic kind of predatory female, like the the three wives so or whatever. The, and that's kind of where I was going, right? Like yeah. so much of what Dracula is and does is um, is you know kind of like covertly sexual. Right. Yeah. 
And so when when Jonathan Harker shows up there, he's about to be feasted on by the three brides of Dracula. But it's staged in such a way that the sexual tension is like palpable. Right? Yeah. You have these women who are pretty indecent and they're coming on to Jonathan quite hard. And then Dracula shows up and <laughs> feeds them a baby. Yeah. And and I think that but this is where that transgression also... really comes into to to the fore, right? right? Because what makes these women so terrifying isn't just their sexual indecency. It's the fact that they also predate on a child in a way that is absolutely contrarian to what we would believe a, a modern woman should do, right? A good woman <laughs> would be a, a wife and mother. She would not mother. eat the babies. A good woman yeah. would never eat Don't babies. Don't eat your babies. Right. I yeah. mean, in a, in I a feel patriarchal... feel like fat bastard from Austin Power. Don't eat the babies. Get in my belly. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> we need to stop the baby. Uh, <laughs> but no, remember, but this babies. goes back to like some of the vampire myths, like the female vampire myths that predated... Right, exactly. Pre- I, th- I think that this is kind of a, again... Predated, a, I said. Not. It's looking at yeah. these social norms, right? These social expectations and moralizing I think for us a good woman right wouldn't be sexually promiscuous a good woman would not eat her children a good woman should be nurturing and these women are not nurturing that's I'm also curious the- though too in that same scene there's some scholars that point out Dracula's response to the women and say there are, there are homoerotic undertones to it and I wanted to get your feeling on that when he says leave him be he's mine and then he gives oh, them the baby. Oh, sure. But I think, again, like the, his, the homoerotic undertones um, are not necessarily presented as a positive thing. Right, right. right. I think that, that uh, like, quite the contrary. Because Dracula is a villain, like, at no point in time should we want to emulate Dracula. Right. Well, there's, <laughs> or, there's or, little or things, too. Man. Like, it says, like, he has hair on the palms. And I think that was oh, believed yeah, back Harry in the day Palm to be, thing. like, a That's what like I masturbation was or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is so old, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Don't touch yourself or you're getting yeah. hairy palms. You'll go yeah. blind. Yeah. 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 And when it's funny is when you tell somebody that and then they immediately look they at They go, their oh, head. shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when I was told that in uh, in high school, they were talking about, um, you know, like like masturbation being healthy or whatever. And my, my health teacher was like, um, you know, you're not going to get hairy palms or something like that. And I was like, don't you dare look at your palms right now. <laughs> and the kids next to me were like, uh. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, I got you. <laughs> A classroom full of kids. They all turn their yeah, palms over. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Or like the, uh, I'd like be like, the, I'm out of here. Marsha Brady, Brady Bunch thing where she's sitting in front of the mirror combing her hair like 99, 100. It's like you just take a brush and hold your hand out in 99, 100. He becomes a source of pride. You see, I know what that guy does. A little bit of Aquanet there on my palm. (laughs) Style it a little bit. Look, it's a bouffant. Another day in the life. I think it's hilarious how many of these episodes, like... That we just go off on a tangent about masturbation or something. It's a trick. It's a trick to it's keep ridiculous. listeners engaged. Every now and then, I'll just it's, whisper. It's a the real good thing. Speaks to our emotional maturity. It's yeah. a real good thing that the Slay Brothers don't listen to us on the regular. Yeah, you guys didn't notice, but every episode I whisper the word boobs or something like that. Yeah. I do it. I do it all the time, and that's the only reason people listen to this thing. Yeah, you do it like like what's his face in the Aladdin movie. Um, oh, oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Disney style, yeah, yeah. Uh, sexual. You like, yeah. You hide the word "sex" in the, you know, in the background. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know. That just takes me to uh, to Dracula dead and loving it when when the woman's been turned into a vampire and she's trying to get Jonathan Harker. She's like, "Don't you want me, Jonathan?" And he's like, "He's like, but I'm British." And she goes and she holds up her breasts and goes, "So are these." So are these. No, but uh, getting back on topic. Right? Hey, yeah. I was on topic. I was talking about Dracula. No, I think you're it. right. I think that um, <laughs> that was a great first step to getting I back to where we were. Dracula yeah. is described in ways that that are both homoerotic and just erotic, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think animalistically that sexual. When he attacks yeah. Lucy, it's definitely there's definitely like some weird kinky shit going on. Oh yeah. Um, but then Lucy herself, I think, turns into this this monster, right? Because Lucy goes she, out and starts predating on children, and that's the real terror, yeah. right? Is that she, um, this this woman who is up until that point, I mean, presented as kind of virginal, kind of because um, wasn't she like she's the one to three, marry someone? She was. She had three suitors. She had Doctor Seward. She had Sir Arthur right, Homewood right. and Quincy the Texan. That's right. Whose name I don't remember. That's right. And they were like, they were all. Quincy, I don't remember. I don't remember. He's the Texan. Yeah, he's the Texan. Yeah. The Texan. <laughs> um, and oh, the fact yeah, that they're all going after her, and, and they talk about her at great length about like all of her many great qualities. And then, so you get uh, the allusion to this to like Jonathan Swift, by the way, right? Like a modest proposal. Like, oh, like they eat babies. Yeah, but in, in a modest and then Jonathan Swift Swift was another Irishman who like wrote this this whole essay. It was a it was a it was not to be t- it was satirical, right? Um, about eating babies, like how to solve their economic problems in Ireland and their overpopulation yeah. was to like raise babies and eat them. Oh man! Yeah. And and it's funny because Swift it, it starts his essay off with like. I was told by this American, who, and he actually names him like a Texan, like told me this is the right way to do things. And so he's like, has this image. So I think making this. the American in this novel like a Texan is a nice little dig like a, right ha, back ha, to ha. Jonathan Swift. It's like tying this again. It's part yeah. of the illusion of illusion, not illusion, folks. I want to. Yeah. As a Texan, I've got to say there there might you, be some, how many there babies have you eaten? Yeah. eaten babies? <laughs> I mean, Chili like started Texas. in Texas, and that's no, where Texas we get that baby. I never ate a whole baby. No, absolutely not. <laughs> but then I no. ate my baby. No. <laughs> too much, too much salt. <laughs> yeah, the, I don't know. The dingo ate your baby. Yeah, so I think that the patriarchal influence on this book is is really really strong, and I have a hard time like performing any other kind of resistive. Uh, or resistant reading to this book because I think yeah. it is so just very clearly um, didactic in in its lessons about how society should should you know operate and the the kind of patriarchal influence. I also I want to talk a, a real quick too about because I think that covers our. Do you think that covers our themes pretty well? I mean, I mean pretty much. This is one of those books that uh, if you go and and read real deep and want to dig through some ideas you're probably going to find something in there i think you could do i think somebody could do a phd dissertation on this this novel absolutely Um, probably i i talked earlier in in an earlier episode about the idea of primary and secondary themes and as a writer i feel like primary themes are the things that i definitely set out that i know my story needs to Mm. say but i think secondary themes are those things that kind of spring out of the narrative as it's being written Mm -hmm. and you can kind of adjust things um the uh, the book that comes to mind for me, did I mention this before, the Harry Cruz, um, A Feast of Snakes, where I felt like he had started out as he's writing this book, A Feast of Snakes, this I, a little bit of idea of like this 
this um, reptilian kind of sensibility. Um, but as he's writing the book, I think more of it kind of popped out of the narrative so that he went back and upon revision and included more of this. And I feel like this idea of primary and secondary scene uh, themes are are also representative in, in Dracula and that, that Bram Stoker yeah. did the same thing. He set out with a set I number of themes and then like as he developed the, the or integrated the historical figure into the monster and then moved into the rest of this, he saw other themes kind of spring forth and he's yeah. like, how can I nurture these and bring these to the, to right. the surface too? Yeah. Um, so I, and I feel like that, like you're, this only goes to support what you just said, that you could go back on multiple rereadings yeah, and find new. something new in the book right. to, to talk about. Yeah. yeah. So, um, when, so yeah, so I feel like, I mean, I feel like that's, that's kind of a good placeholder for the discussion of theme right now, but it's not the end all be all and it's not meant to be the end all be all. It's just right. to give a good introduction. But I think too, I'd like to talk about, and there's so much to talk about with craft. I mean, I could do a whole nother probably four or five he episodes d- on craft. There's there's a lot going on in this book. I mean, it's it's for the most part an epistolary novel. It's an epistolary novel where each character has their own unique voice, which yes, is interesting. That is really interesting and hard to pull off. You do Very not see a whole off. lot of different authors who can present a point of view that is truly distinct from other points of view. Right. Um and I think we could go on and on and on about this, but let me rein it in just real quickly and talk like what I've been talking about the entire season, which was the objective correlative. And I feel like this novel is a masterclass in studying the objective correlative, that that idea of the outside mirroring the inside. Mm. Um, you know, we talked about the movement from east to west, from mysticism to science, and we have the outside, you know, representing this from, say, Romania and the, the haunted... Yeah you know, environment and Which the cultures and the setting. Quite ancient, right? Very so ancient. the objective, I, I was Googling this because uh, I don't know about this stuff like you guys do. Yeah. Um, objective correlative, to my understanding, is when you use um, uh, symbols to represent some kind of emotion, emotional mm-hmm. response, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. So, the, so symbols. What all does that encompass? Does that so encompass everything? Everything. Anything. The setting. People want to link to historically. So, so uh, people just, limit it to like, like, um, they limit it to like, oh, it was a dark and you know, dark and stormy night kind of deal. Like I they want to limit it to the setting comparison. Yeah. Right. Right. But okay. it can encompass anything. It can be, you know, your character could be walking outside and comment on, you know, the sunny kind of cloudless day. They could be. Um, you know, music or song could play in the background that would re- like reflect on that. It could be the way he depicts like the, the haunted. If you read the passages where Harker is traveling into Transylvania to go meet Dracula, the imagery is very haunting, very disturbing. Right. And it Which really unsettles representative Harker. Of, it, it unsettles Harker. Harker feels very unsettled, but it also works to describe like kind of the the moment of history. Yeah. Right, because he he walks into this place that feels haunted, and really, I think that haunting is is reflecting back on us like this long and storied period of violence that mm-hmm. that we have not seen that Harker is then feeling uneasy about as he walks right. into this space, and know? as he investigates and as he learns about it, I mean, it's more reflecting his interior emotion. Um, yeah. I think for another example would be like. Um, you know, Dracula, he spots Dracula just like fucking crawling around the, the side of this building like a oh. like an animal, like a lizard, <laughs> yeah. um, which I think is, again, in, intended to kind of demonstrate to us like Dracula is not a human being. 
he's something entirely different. Right. We yeah. can't treat him with the same kind of um, respect that we might give to an actual human being because this dude is a literal monster. So you don't right? know what to expect from him. But I think, yeah. yeah. I think it's not going deep enough if we discuss the objective correlative merely with the presence of the characters on the page. I think those emotions are meant to also reflect in us as the reader. They're meant to reflect in the character of the setting because to me, London and, and Transylvania, Romania, Castle Dracula, Carfax Abbey, these are very much characters in the novel themselves. Um, and so that that idea that the outside or that symbols represent the emotional states of the interior of the characters or whatever can also reflect on the bigger part of the narrative or even reflect on us as readers too. Yeah, right. um, I mean, how much of it is about our attitudes toward these various places? I right. mean, you think about something like Romania and, and I mean, what, what so much of our perception of what realistically is a modernized country, right? Um, is still that it's very poor and it's backwards and backwards, you know, you, you you see Borat <laughs> and, and Borat's depiction of like of Georgia with Romania when it comes to Romania I've always pictured like um, uh, people that are cold eating like beet <laughs> like soup, yeah yeah you know, like beet, yeah that's no you're right Russian I think but and, and you know. I think that there's a misconception there right because uh, yeah, Romanians have the internet you know yeah. like, but I, I want to point I want to I want to reiterate this point I made I think back in the uh the second part of the the Bram Stoker story is that now I'm not going to say that no Romanian had ever read or heard of Dracula I'm just saying that Dracula the novel was not published in Romanian at large until 1990. Right. So their perception of the historical figure was not colored by pop culture and by Bram Stoker's interpretation. That's just amazing to me, to me that it took that long yeah. for them yeah. to uh, It's wild. I, I, I to mean, read that. But I think these things, you know, as they're presented to us, reflect our our perception of these places too, right? Yeah. I mean, how much of, of our, like, oh, like Transylvania, this, like, spooky, creepy place that yeah, never modernized is due to and... figures like Bram Stoker who are like you know every every place in in the east is is mystical yeah, right yeah, because yeah. We're, we're given so much in our pop culture that suggests that the east is just so wildly different from the west yeah and I think in the 20th century at least for many of us it's it is not that different. No, no. And, Damn and, you, globalization! You took away the. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm more of a musician, so I have to bring up the Beatles. You know, they they went to uh, India and they like oh, yeah, got into right. the culture, and then they they started putting sitars in their music, and you know, they they did that for a reason, and it was yeah. to kind of show that there's a lot of use, there's a lot of accessibility in that culture for sure. for anybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's always like as an American. Our notions of uh, these places are kind of just—it's so laughable. It's so skewed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everybody thinks that uh, Mexico is just orange all the time because we never film—we <laughs> never film anything in Mexico exactly. without a sepia tone on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they go and it's like bright right blue the skies, last time I like, went hey. down to Mexico, as soon as I crossed the border, I had a sepia tone on me, and I was yeah, like, yeah, you know, no, exactly. Yeah. And, and right. yeah. Quentin Tarantino is like standing there at the bar, like right. talking shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Here at Dr. Seward's Mental Emporium, we specialize in treating all manner of disorders and behaviors using a plethora of modern techniques. If you have a loved one who is suffering, please don't hesitate to call us. We have a state-of-the-art behavioral calaboose where every resident will receive their own private, secure quarters. Our quad has the appropriate furnishings to secure any patient's needs, from straitjackets to chains to minimalist bedding to ensure that no harm can come to those in treatment. We treat multiple personalities, psychosis, depression, adultery, wife only, homosexuality, animal cruelty, alcoholism, drug addiction, hysteria in women, but not spousal abuse or pedophilia, using such treatments as full lobotomies, electroshock therapy, ice baths, manacling to isolated settings like outhouses, beds, or posts, and a wide variety of colonics. We incorporate medicines like laudanum and other opiates and cocaine to treat our patients. So if you or anyone you know is a lunatic, imbecile, or idiot, don't just settle for any asylum. Come to Dr. Seward's Mental Emporium today. Always a vacancy, overcrowding not an issue, acceptance into the program does not guarantee a length of stay as you will likely never leave. So let's revisit my thesis really quickly. Stoker, on his own, wasn't as influential an author as maybe some of his contemporaries. I'll add that little bit in there too. And his body of work as a whole did not impact the literary zeitgeist to a large degree. But due to the novel's lasting power, that's one thing, Stoker's ability to include primary and secondary themes reflecting society and the individual, which help elevate the genre novel to literary status, and the novel's influence on pop culture and genre fiction, Dracula is one of the most influential English language novels of all time. I feel like I can agree with this yeah. This thesis as you've revised it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that we've hit kind of the right nuance here. And I think this this reflects on some of the conver- – I mean, the reason why we wanted to have this conversation in the first place. Yeah. Because a lot of horror, a lot of genre, you know, does lean back on some of the stuff that Stoker was doing. And I think he is a great representation of what, what genre can do, is capable of doing exactly. for human storytelling. And, and that's the thing. That's what kind of spurned this, this discussion between Trevor and I initially, way before we even started the podcast. What gave yeah. us the idea of doing a podcast was like, hey, we want to show, put out into the world so that it could be proven to academia that genre has a valuable place in this discussion. Well, and I think also just reaching out to people people who maybe are reluctant readers or maybe have never explored this stuff before and try to encourage them to encounter more of this stuff in the stuff that they read you know right. the, the the literary diet that they have i'm one of those people yeah but i think that dracula what's what's great about dracula is it does set us up for um kind of like a i don't know like a a long tradition a century-long tradition at this point for vampires and vampire fiction and what vampire fiction is capable of doing. And we see a couple of other figures crop up throughout the 20th century that I think would at least innovate a little bit on what Stoker was doing and present 
kind of minor paradigm shifts going forward. Right. But before we discuss those figures, let's really quickly recap how to define those paradigm shifts through Dracula, through the novel, right? So one, we have Dr. Seward and Abraham Van Helsing suggesting that whatever this transmission is happening, whatever is turning people into vampires occurs through the blood, through the exchange of blood, right? That's one thing. Two, we have the- I think it's- I would categorize. I mean that that yeah, yeah, is, yeah. but I would categorize that just like in a broader category. Yeah, I think is the conflict between um, mysticism science and, and yeah, science, right. and science and mysticism, and mysticism. Right. Yeah. which right. are are like is a mainstay for so much of of horror. You know, the the I try to watch a horror movie nowadays that yeah. doesn't try at least to to counter you know the mysticism with with science right. it's almost impossible <laughs> it really is um the second thing is the sexualization of the predator in this novel yeah, right absolutely um the sexualization of vampires and then finally and this is where i want to add my my antus into this like we've discussed off off podcast but i, I really oh. think this fits is this idea of trying to elevate the genre to higher art and and pre- present a a more cohesive, more yeah. um, more intellectual narrative. Yeah, along with I those. do have to state I don't necessarily believe that Stoker was trying to elevate genre to horror. I don't think so. I just I think don't he think was this, using his craft as best yeah, he could. I don't think that genre existed in the 19th century no. as it exists now. Genre, when we talk about it in the 20th century or the 21st century, I think is is really relegated to marketing i mean so much of what we consider about genre is just a marketing ploy prior to that marketing ploy where we start grouping like things together in order to foster a readership you know foster um people who are gonna buy books yeah um i think that you know these are all just pieces of literature and i think there were so many of those contemporary authors who were writing you know what would be considered nowadays genre fiction? I mean, we talked I mean, about Edith Wharton. I mean, yeah, who wrote almost like a, like a ton of ghost fiction. She was practically the queen of ghost fiction. Jay Sheridan Le Fanu, we mentioned him. Yeah, we mentioned. I mean, there's a ton I mean, of them. Uh, if, back then. Uh, uh, who is the gal who did um, Little Women? Oh, yeah. I don't remember what her name is, but I know who you're talking about. Man. We gotta um, we gotta record with all of my tangents like uh, on uh, out in front of me. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're gonna bring something up, man, you gotta yeah, have, you gotta know yeah, what you're talking phone about. <laughs> I got it. But uh, uh, Louisa May Alcott. Louisa May Alcott. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she wrote uh, a whole bunch of crime fiction, like like so, bloody violent crime fiction, before she went on to make Little Women and become popular for that. I think. I, I think what happens, I think, um, I think that's a a, a rearview mirror kind of um, sure perceptive view of like saying Stoker wrote, you know, with yeah. elevating the literature or whatever. He didn't write to say that that means he 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 imbued or included craft choices that are educated choices. He wasn't just out to tell story using here's story A, here's story. B. Point B. Here's point C. And I mean, I think my contention there is just it's not it's not pulp. It's not like it's not. But pulp would come after him, right? I, yeah. And that's what I'm trying to say is that I don't think. Well, that, there were penny dreadfuls around his time, and penny dreadfuls sure. could be included as pulp. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he's he's been lumped in with a lot of the 
Penny Dreadful. And in the, the, in the United and, States, they had the dime novel, which had the you know the the little westerns and stuff and adventure yeah. stories oh, that yeah. were Absolutely. these were novels. I mean, these were stories that you know Stoker spent six years putting this novel together. Yeah, there's some artists who create their what is considered literature. I'll yeah. air quote that. Um, who spent a couple of years writing this thing, as opposed to the writer who like you know types it out in six months and gets it off sure. to the publisher and yeah. all the characters are stock and all the characters are flat and they have no dimension to them whatsoever um you know i'll name drop somebody james patterson james patterson is if we were 100 if, years after bram stoker but he's yeah. 100 years after but he's a good example of that no he's a good example right. of and I he's think, not imbuing any kind of real craft into his stories he's just and I think those, those writers did exist in Stoker's oh, time. They did, I mean, yeah. George, George Reynolds with the the mysteries of London, like the, the where we get the idea of the Penny Dreadful from. Yeah, um, he was one of the most popular writers in in Britain. He was more popular than Charles Dickens at yeah. one point in time, and uh, and Dickens hated him, you know, because like that was very much like George Reynolds was the trash literature of his time. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think That's what I'm saying point. is that I don't know that Stoker came out necessarily to elevate anything or to, or to provide right. a piece of literature that was, you know, in contrast with something he felt I don't was think he art. did either. You think it's all just but kind I also of a retrospective? Think, I know where you're leaning, though, and what you're leaning on is basically to say that in, in literature after this fiction, right, after Bram Stoker... We see a lot of people take ideas from Bram Stoker and start to turn it real pulpy. And yeah. then we have writers later on who go back to that pulp and try to re re yeah, implement but, some of that that literary merit. But what I'm pulpiness. saying with Stoker is that Stoker, because there were these pulpy kind of contemporaries, there were these 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 less crafted as far as I mean, they're still written stories, but they're not as well crafted stories sure. they they don't take as much time stoker didn't do that he didn't rest on his laurels in writing this story he not only did years of research he also spent a lot of time developing the different voices he he yeah. incorporated into the storytelling craft decisions which takes more time and in doing this that elevated the story to a more literary platform as opposed to somebody who punches out a story in six months and sure the the characters are flat there's no real decisions there's no real any kind of input into this it's like here's my story here it is he didn't do that so no i don't think he set out to write something this isn't something he consciously said this is how i'm going to do it just like i don't set out to write like am i going to write this pulpy or am i going to write it you know really good he took the craft that he had already learned and what he already knew right. and you know and used that to create this story just as I do, just as some of our, our better yeah. authors do when they're when we that we've talked about, you know, we didn't just sit down and be like, you know, we're not these people on Twitter it's that not are just like a product, right? right. He's not just I didn't I wrote five thousand words today. It's like yeah, but are they are they great words? I mean, <laughs> yeah. probably not. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm not gonna go out and say that any of those people who hit their word targets or whatever are not. But stuff. if that's where you're starting, if, you're, if, that's if you're your starting, focus. yeah, if you're starting I, I from mean, a place of quantity, yeah, you know, yeah, I feel like we. Can, this is a conversation I want to have, but I, I want to hold. I want to hold this conversation for when we talk about R.L. Stein in the next season. Okay, because uh, right. I have I have some very contentious views about those who who write for quantity versus those who would quote unquote write for quality. And I, th I feel like the people who were writing for quantity are still writing quality, but it's different. And, and I want to talk about what the differences are there. 
Where, I'll, I'll like, yeah. But we'll, I, we'll, I'm, I'm just, we'll I want to go discussion. on the record of, of right. defense for the people who are like, I write 5,000 words a day. I'm like, I think that there's still something of great literary merit going on there. Um, and I, I do want it to just put a pin in that discussion for later. Well, and I will always say, because I, I tend to start off from like from my own, you know, my own ability to, to storytell and, and my own viewpoints on this podcast, I tend to start with something very broad and then I, I funnel it into something a little more nuanced. Yeah. And that's just how I've always written. That's how I've always I've always done things. So I'm not going to fully disagree with you. Yeah. But I am going to say, you know, with my broad, um, not yet nuanced viewpoint on this. I, I do think just I, I agree with Curtis. You know, it's just quantity, but I will redefine and make that more nuanced when we have that discussion. Yeah. For Arl Stein. This is how a lot of our conversations go. They actually usually. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like they do go yeah, this way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, but to your point, right? To, and I think that what you're trying to set up is is talking about later writers who would revisit these genre elements. Yeah. And, and try to remove them from the, the quote-unquote cultural gutter and elevate them. Right. So what right. we want to look at, really, I think, are probably three writers that yeah. um, that took each of these areas and really kind of moved them or kind of yeah. created their own minor paradigm shifts with yeah. them. Two of them did more to, to make a paradigm shift than the third, but the third is kind of the, he and of himself is kind of the antithesis of Stoker, who... His body of work didn't matter uh-huh. a lot. This third author that we're going to talk about in this this group is matter, his, yeah. he's more prolific in his his work. Oh is. yeah, definitely. Um, so the first author we're going to mention is Richard Matheson. Yeah. Uh, when did you say that book was published? I can't. Re- it was in the fifties. I am legend. I, I am legend. Or something like that. Yeah, something like that. I can't. I can't remember. Uh, I should. We should have written that in our show notes. I should have. Yeah. Uh, this is just I was going episode, off my memory. This is the episode where we all just sit around and and never get anything right. The entire episode yeah. is like us lazy. just on our phones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is all very last minute. Yeah. Um, FYI, I Am yeah, Legend was not a movie first. That right. was actually it was a, book. a book from like I think fifty four. <laughs> it was fifty four. It was yeah. nineteen fifty four. And, and Richard Matheson really kind of brought back this idea of the vampire as something transmissible through disease through yeah. a virus which there's, is cool there's a yeah. lot that's pretty cool there's a lot yeah. that the story does that i am legend that i think is really interesting in and of its its own right i think that none of the movies that have been produced about i am legend not the will smith one not the omega man not any of the others um that have been produced even get come close to like the idea that matheson was really playing with but one <laughs> of the concepts one of the conceits that matheson puts in this story is that vampirism is transmissible or transmissible like a virus. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's some kind of like viral or bacterial agent which transforms the person, you know, as the host to whatever this disease is. And that is a, that is, has become a hallmark, right, of so much fiction going forward. The yeah. idea of, of, whatever this is being transmissible I mean, specifically through a now. viral agent the walking dead i mean there's you can't have a zombie movie without yeah, richard matheson's later. yeah yeah without richard matheson's uh, influence and i'm kind of tired <laughs> of this idea guys i don't know what do you guys think you curtis you said you liked it I, I liked it. Uh, and, you know, I'm the only one in this room right now that hasn't read the novel I Am Legend. <laughs> seen, I don't think I've, I've read I Am Legend yet. I don't I'm believe like, I've read it yet. I did read it. Uh, yeah. And it's 
it's good. I, it's also not what I was expecting. Okay. Well, going see in. our Richard Matheson episode, folks. Go I've, back only seen, uh, I've only seen the Will Smith movie, but what I'm guessing is not different is um, the fact that the main character is virtually completely alone in this, right? Right. More or less, I mean, yeah. it's like it's like him and everybody else has turned. Everybody else is, like. is gone. Or, so so yeah. the movie made me feel uh, like this crushing loneliness. I mean, just absolutely soul-destroying mm-hmm. loneliness that this guy has. Yeah. Yeah. The, the images of him walking through the city and there's just nobody. Everything's yeah. overrun with uh, vines. There are deer on the you know, on the sidewalk, just, it's just so like, it's just amazing. I'm guessing that, that that's not different from the novel, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> Am I wrong? I'll tell you what the novel is. Let's ready? do it. You Let's ready? do it. I All actually right, so, can't wait. So the now. main character, Neville or whatever his name is, mm-hmm. it, it, I, I think Neville is his last name. Um, in the movie, it was probably Will because I don't think Will Smith can act with any other character. <laughs> named Will. No, I, I think, it, I think it's, it's like it's like Robert Neville or, or Richard Neville like, or something. Neville, like that. that sounds right. Neville, Robert Neville, 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 and Will's just looking off somewhere, and somebody's like, "Will," and he's like, "Oh yeah." Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm no, really bad. I can't at this. remember what Will. I don't know what Will's uh, best I don't character. Remember what his it's name been is. a minute. Yeah, but um, <laughs> so essentially, he he is the last. Man, or he believes himself to be the last man, right, in in his neighborhood or whatever. He's kind of in this suburban area, though, and uh, he he rolls out a couple times a day um, to like, you know, do whatever it is that he does, and he does like kill some of his neighbors. He does like try to eradicate some of these like vampire whatever he's running into, um, but they are they they can talk, they know. Who he is they show up outside of his house all the time and they oh. they talk shit at him and stuff like that so, so they're not like, like completely you know like dead no they can't uh, be out during the daytime but at nighttime they do come and, and antagonize him right and so um eventually he you know because he's going out and slaughtering them the whole time as they're evolving through whatever their illness is and oh my he, god he like teaches himself biochemistry to kind of understand who they are and uh and you know figures out that it's like this viral agent or whatever and he's the only one who knows this eventually he's captured by these vampires um they hold um this like new court right the court of the this their new society or whatever as they continue to evolve because he's the last human and they've all turned into whatever it it, it is and so they they decide to publicly execute him. Holy shit! Um, yeah. I'm so backwardsly wrong. No, about so that. They, they decide to execute him as like the last human because he's killed so many of them, <laughs> and he realizes that he like as he was worrying about them as vampires or whatever as these creatures from myth or from legend, he's the legend because they all remember him as the only remaining. Like not new human or new vampire or whatever it is whatever that they, it is are. they are. He's the only one who was ev- who was never turned, and he killed so many of them that now he's become legend. And that's where we get the title. So why couldn't legend. why couldn't that have been the movie, dude? That I have so- no that sounds, I have no clue. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Is I it- have no clue. I went into uh you know I saw I saw Omega Man. I saw this movie. Um, 
and and both of them are very weird. Uh, the Will Smith I Am Legend is yeah. just weird. It and, is weird. And I did not necessarily like either one of them. I was like, I don't understand what they're doing here. The the I the Omega Man is uh is real. You got to watch that with Charlton Heston. It's real weird. It has <laughs> it has a completely different subtext than like the Will Smith one does even. And I didn't care much for the Will Smith one because I was like, I don't know. This doesn't feel like it's all that special. And then I went to read the book and I was very reluctant to read the book because I didn't like either of those two movies. And then the book's so completely different. I was like, holy fuck, this is way better than it's so either of the movies. It's so frustrating that they never just take what's in the book and, and just really try and pull it off. Yeah, I, I know, think they could. Really I, I feel like they could. I feel like we could get a new director who could really take this story yeah. and, and bring it back to the book. And I know you and I have had that discussion before about how like – you know, adaptions are good because they, you know, we get the original and so adaptions are fine. You know, you were, you know, and, and, and I was like, you know, I, I want to see a true to the, true to the book, you know, kind of story being played out in another media before I get these adaptions and stuff. I, I think personally, I think what's come after that in this down this, this Matheson path has just exhausted me. Like you and I have both read um, Guillermo Guillermo del Toro's uh, The Strain, which was co-written by Chuck Hogan. Yeah, yeah, that is an exhausting trilogy. Oh my gosh, I, they spend, I couldn't even make my way through it. They spend so much time, like you know, answering why these things can exist and and mansplaining to you what I just I lost like, I lost interest the moment when Chuck Hogan started at, like explaining to me diagram of how an airplane fucking works yeah like like there's a whole part in the the first book where chuck hogan is just like he's just explaining to you where the parts of an airplane are because they're trying to crack into this airplane that's full of like a (laughs) biological agent i think the one that pissed me off though along because we also had like daybreakers you've got like you know all which is good daybreakers is a yeah but it's it's on that same it's like underworld it's like the the I mean, it turns them into this like an urban fantasy kind of thing instead of horror. But the one that remember the one that pissed me off, and we're we're mentioning some pretty high, well-respected authors in this discussion here. The one that pissed me off was Dan Simmons, um, Summer oh. of Night, <laughs> where he spends it's a four hundred page book about vampires, and he spends the first hundred and fifty pages telling you how a vampire could physically, like medically and scientifically, be real. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. Just give me the vampires. He probably, you know, thinks uh, that there's a lot of people out there that really appreciate all of that. Like, I don't yeah, need it's it. Like, I don't need it. Well, when I pick up a book about vampires or I watch a movie about, thing. I don't need it. They're I'm not a, real. I'm gonna push on you for a moment. I think that I think Dan Simmons, like the reason that book exists the way it does, is because Dan Simmons is one of those writers who's like, I'm gonna elevate this genre right here. You watch me elevate this genre. Well, and, and I think and he actually went to Transylvania. I think he went to Romania. I yeah. I mean, I. So he's I, like trying to bring logic me. to the table and like we're gonna make all of this yeah. make sense. That's a very Dan yeah. Simmons. Like, you don't need to. I don't need it to make sense. Right. Dan Simmons is a very high concept writer. I think. I didn't pick up this book to explain to me how my neighbor is acting weird. <laughs> I don't need. <laughs> I, I don't fucking need this as a manual. I just yeah, I want yeah. to read about vampires. Yeah. Get on with it. Yeah. But no, if the I, antibodies yeah. are formed through this cell and yeah. then come to no, this I can, organ, you know what? I can agree really with you. And this is one of the things that frustrates me is because this trope ha- this trope has become so influential 
in in all of horror fiction like when we saw antlers yeah and i was i remember we had that conversation where i was like i'm kind of bothered by the fact that this curse is passed on to this guy through a bite right and like we we show he's he's bitten and then all of a sudden spoiler alert yeah all of a sudden you turn into a wendigo or or the the threat is that you're going to turn into a wendigo because you were bitten by a wendigo i think that's so fucking dumb <laughs> i really do it's always I a think, bite right yeah it's always, it's a, always bite. a bite it's always and and like there's no innovation there and i'm like yeah. you know what i get the parallel because they're trying to say that the wendigo the curse of the wendigo in this case is like it like manifests as trauma and it manifests as like a cycle of violence. Yeah, but I think that's the actual myth too. I think if you're bitten by the Wendigo, given the this the the nature of like the, the cannibalism, it? yeah, it was it was a myth on cannibalism. Well, I know, but I I didn't. So I thought this, it was a curse. I see. I always understood it as maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's someone out there who's like into indigenous studies or Native American studies who can correct me. Stephen on this. Graham Jones, get back with us and let us um, know. Um, <laughs> somebody who's more knowledgeable than me but maybe. not Stephen Jones the but editor I always Britain. understood it as um, it's not Stephen Jones <laughs> the white guy in Britain um, I always understood it as like like there's it's a curse right you yeah. turn into a Wendigo not because you're bitten by a Wendigo but because you transgress against the laws of nature and right. therefore yeah. you start transforming so you don't have to be bitten by a Wendigo. Like Trevor's dog bit me the other day. I, it's, I didn't turn into a dog. Thank God. <laughs> this would be a weird podcast. I might smell like a dog. Yeah. No, but coming back to this trope, I am tired of it. I'm very yeah. tired of this trope. I'm yeah, ready yeah. for us to just be, you know, go back to embrace like, I don't know. I think there could have been a better balance. I don't think we had to, you know, I didn't need for Summer of Night like 150 pages explaining me the scientific possibility of a vampire, you know, but, but that's another thing. I mean, that's what Stoker did so well is he balanced that medical and the mystical and that's what we need more of. I think, I think we need to get back to that. I just want to get back to the mystical stuff. I want to get back to the mystical stuff too. And that brings up our second author. Who did a, a little slight paradigm shift, and we were in a. I'm going to speak out again because we we mentioned her a few episodes ago. It's now been a few weeks, um, but she was one of the first past mm-hmm. deaths of 2022. Um, Anne Rice. Anne Rice yeah. um, was very influential on vampires. Highly she heightened and highlighted that um, that idea of the sexual and the romantic monster. Yeah, I think that. When you look at urban fantasy today, um, yeah. and especially like the the impulses of urban fantasy, I think that's all Anne Rice. Yeah, I think it comes from the stories that she wrote, um, starting with Interview with a Vampire, and continuing from there. She put a real emphasis on uh, the sexuality of these these vampires, mm-hmm. um, but she also told stories that were you know deep with drama and conflict and. Um, you know, sometimes that was like generational because you have these these creatures that are here forever. She also gave us some real interesting bits of horror and and innovations on horror, like the the child vampire, the child immortal. Yeah. Um, which was an Anne Rice thing and a terrifying thing. Yeah. So I think that um, we we owe a lot more in terms of of uh, cultural mainstay with vampire fiction to Anne Rice. So the third, and I agree with Trevor in this, Trevor's idea was that the paradigm shifts occurred more greater with 
Richard Matheson and Anne Rice, but I still think Stephen King had an influence on this and that before he, I think um, Salem's Lot was in between these two previous novels. It was in between, I think it came before Interview yeah. with a Vampire, but way, way. No, it came after Interview with a Vampire. Oh, uh, uh, no, no, I no, think no, it, no, it no you're before. right. It was like 74 and she was like 76 or something. Yeah, something like that. There were a couple, so it was a lot closer to Interview with a Vampire than it was Richard Matheson's right. Legend. Yeah. But it's, it's, but, I mean, we, but it, it like, represents that, that third part of the trifecta, whereas the vampire is scary. And I'm sorry, but I, to me, just as iconic as any of these other things, the boy flying and hovering outside the window, like knocking on the window pane saying, let me in, let me, that terrified me from like the first time I saw it in the, <laughs> in the old TV movie from like 1978. And I think that's, that was really well done. Um, but I think he kept the, the idea of the vampire is scary. So they, mm. they stay away from the, you know, the vampires that come from this line of, of thought, I don't think are, can be really, I mean, there is some horror in Interview with a Vampire, but they're, they're still they humanized. I they're, think they're scarier than you think. No, you're I, right. They I, should they're just make humanized. them a kind of humanish character, or well, human character. They have human problems. Yeah. Right. Just because they're immortal, I think their their problems just shift to you know in a speculative way. You know, the, and in, the problems and, of a, a person who can live for forever. And Stephen King is kind of reminding us that these things are fucking creepy they're monsters they're they're yeah. predators they're meant to terrify us and he watches he he shows over the course of this novel how that was his whole premise too was that he wanted dracula he said dracula wouldn't come to a big city like london he wouldn't come to new york city he said i think dracula would come to small town america and yeah. that's how he would gain Forks, washington Stephen yeah. King is really good about doing <laughs> that, a, right? About, about I know that was a twilight. I'm ignoring your twilight joke. Because <laughs> <laughs> that kind of implies like Dracula could live in your town, right? Right. That makes it scarier. It's just well, like Pennywise. And he also That's looks at themes. That's he looks at some up. interesting themes like that because he in in Salem's Lot he talks about you know the the idea of small evil versus large world evil, and small evil is just as as yeah. predatory, like the small town, the the banal kind of evil is just it's as... also a, a continuation of what a lot of horror was doing in the the fifties and sixties. Yeah, you know we talked we've talked before briefly about William Pla Peter Blatty with like The yeah. Exorcist. Um, I think he's he's kind of like the perfect example of the domestic horror. Um, yeah. you know the, the kind of small town horror yeah, yeah. But, Which, but i think that Pla like blatty even is just a continuation of a long um yeah. kind of series of efforts to try to relocalize right. horror right. Yeah. Right, to, right to give it back to us in our homes well and that you know that to me that 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 kind of pushes against like say one of the original progenitors of horror in the United States which was like Edgar Allan Poe who set mm. a lot of his stories in like these unnamed far off kind of lands yeah and that goes back to this idea of horror and genre all the way back to like romance literature. And I don't mean romance like Jane Austen or Harlequin or anything like that, but no, I mean like the romance. The romantic era. The yeah. romantic era, um, you know, knights and the, the idea of like them going yeah. off to fight supernatural the, the creatures in far off lands. The idealization story. of it, yeah. right. And Stephen King very con and William Peter Blatty very consciously say, no, 
horror can exist in your little pocket of yeah. the world and can be just as monumental yeah. as it is way out there. Yeah. Right. And Even scary. Horror can exist yeah. in your marriage just as much as it can exist, you know, external <laughs> exactly. to it. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, it's just as present in the corrupt businessman as it is in the right. the evil preacher or as it is in the the warrior general who is slaughtering thousands in genocide. Right, I right, mean, it's, right. It's, it's all, there's no, it's there's just very the, little difference. The scaling is just different. Yeah. Yeah. The scaling yeah. is different. And yeah. I think he brings it to a domestic space, which yeah. is a lot of, of the influence, I think, you know, what we're talking about here is, is like seeing um, that domestic space, you know, become more and more a space for, for horror. Yeah. Yeah. And the Lost Boys, I think, was one of those texts I that we had talked about. I just about. watched The Lost Boys again the other night. Yeah, I but, love but that I mean, movie. The, the Lost Boys, it, it's a good movie. I wouldn't say that it necessarily elevates the I genre. I didn't say it elevated all. genre. I just said I love the movie. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think it's in the same vein of, one of, of us, Stephen Michael. King, right? It kind of puts <laughs> what did you do to me, vampires David? in our lives, and it it kind of. Gives. Thou shall not give. Are you just gonna re- reenact the <laughs> I'm whole just movie? Just gonna reenact the whole fucking movie. Yeah. I love. <laughs> Scene <two>. one. <laughs> Scene one. <laughs> the camera swoops down from the sky view of the carnival. No, but I, th- I think, it, um, yeah, to your credit, I mean, like Lost Boys, I think is centered in um, kind of like modern domestic life. You I'm know? just saying, put the Lost Boys up against the fucking Cullens, and we'll see who comes out on top. I mean. I don't know. Have Keeper you seen Sutherland them play the... baseball? Because the Cullens can play baseball. Have you seen Keeper <laughs> Sutherland rip a biker's head off in that movie while his face changes? He rips a fucking biker's mo- head off. The most 80s vampire of all time, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And then Fright Night. I loved Fright Night. Like, that was... Sure. And another kind of, like, kooky... I, I see a, a lot very... of this is, like, also a reinterpretation of you know like pop culture itself yeah. right like a very a very knowing pop culture uh, meta representation well and that's the before. last thing i think we ought to talk about is this idea of like the vampires and, and dracula's influence on pop culture and i think we can just kind of go off from there and yeah and do that from the makers of dr seward's laudanum comes dr seward's cocaine Mommy, I scraped my knee. Here, have some cocaine. I just don't feel like cleaning the house today. Here, have some cocaine. My sinuses are really blocked. Oh, the pressure. You need some cocaine. That's right, folks. Dr. Seward has a cure for whatever ails you. And now, get your cocaine today. Soon available in a delightful carbonated beverage or powdered form. You said yeah. your first impression was uh, your first exposure to vampires was Interview with the Vampire. Mine like was Fright sex. Night. Fright and Night. Fr- I never saw Fright Night. Oh man, Fright mine? Night. My so Fright Night um, had uh, Roddy McDowell from like the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. And he was a late night television host on these bad like Hammer style kind of like old vampire and horror movies. And um, this kid who actually real life is from South Arkansas and he went to school with my uncle. Like my uncle knows him, um, named oh, William wow. Ragsdale, uh, is the star of, of Fright Night. And it had Amanda Bierce, who was later on like a married with children. She was the neighbor. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so uh, he thinks his neighbor next door is uh, is a vampire. And he gets Roddy McDowell, he goes to visit him, 
who ends up being just the biggest coward in the world. Like he presents himself as like this famed vampire hunter. And <laughs> he's like, I am a great vampire hunter and, and all this. And then he's like, he finds the vampire and he's like, Oh, he's like running oh, out shit, of there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, it's real That's, campy. Like it's real, it's real it campy, campy, but it, it has some good horror movie. moments and some great practical effects in it. And so that was my first exposure was like, Ooh, yeah. vampires are supposed to be scary. Right. And then I watched the Salem's lot, like the Tobe Hooper Salem's lot. And sure. then I watched, uh, uh, Lost Boys, yeah. and so I'm I'm like going into this with like ooh scary vampires. So when I picked up Interview with a Vampire, I'm like, what the fuck is this? It, it, it <laughs> felt like one of those I mean, novels that your grandma keeps in her bedside table, uh, right? No, a like little a, bit, like, yeah. a, like a Fabio type thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Does. Well, and Brad Pitt kind of was Fabio at the uh, yeah. time. Yeah, right? that hair. He's, he was he so still Fabio. Kinda is. He kind of <laughs> still yeah. is. It's it's still a bit is. it's a bit ridiculous. But then we got. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Totally different the kind of only movie. piece of media out there that has a longer name than Slayhouse Publishing. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's, <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> That's Say what that inspired me to, to, to title our, our, our podcast. Was, <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, so, and you get Keanu Reeves with his on-again, off-again British accent. <laughs> and, and, uh, whoa. <laughs> whoa. whoa. Vampires. I am. So, uh, I mean, my uh, my <laughs> first exposure to vamp uh, vampire fiction and really Dracula was um was the the old 1930s movie. Um, oh yeah 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 with yeah. with Bela Lugosi. Again though, he's still supposed to be scary there. What I mean, movie? He's supposed to be. Yeah. The the, the old so the MGM Studios the is Bela Dracula Lugosi. with Bela Lugosi. Okay, no, I, I thought you were talking about uh, Nosferatu, but that's well, earlier, that right? Well, that was earlier, yeah. And yeah. I did eventually see uh, Nosferatu but as those a only re- For me, those only reinforced, like, the vampire is scary, right? I like, mean, in a way, yeah. Yeah, and, Nosferatu's but also the scariest a campy, one. Yeah, they're you know, a little campy, because, you know, like, the 1930s yeah. movies definitely get into... I mean, Dracula meets Abbott and Costello at one point in time. Yeah. Which I think is, is really goofy. That was like one of the first shared universes. Though, it's actually a lot of fun. Which, I think which fun. which of these iterations of of Dracula did Christopher Lee star as? Dracula? So that was in the seventies. That we was like the Hammer ta- film stuff. We yeah, haven't even talked stuff. about the fact that Christopher Lee played Dracula like fifty times, the, right? That yeah, was like he, an extension he, of the Universal monsters, right? Yeah, him like, and Frank Langella. Both yeah. played Dracula for for a long time. I mean, it and was you like also got Dark Shadows in there, like the the old Dark, Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows was was uh, I mean, there there was a vampire in Dark Shadows, but that was a soap opera, right? That like became crazy. Um, like my parents would tell me about the, running home from school 50. just to watch it. Dark yeah. Shadows. Yeah. That was that Johnny Depp movie too, right? They made a they did a remake, and I liked it. it. Yeah. yeah, I loved the secret compartments of the house. Yeah, like the house weird. is just like it never but, ends. But if you watch, I mean, there are, there are hundreds of episodes of Dark Shadows because it was a yeah. daily show. It was a daily soap opera, yeah. <laughs> and it cool. it originally was not a vampire story. It was it was like originally just a gothic kind of almost like a gothic romance a gothic drama right yeah. um, and then they introduced Barnabas. several hundred episodes in they, they introduced a vampire character do you think yeah. that's kind of what maybe to the, dominate the show the Adams Family do you think that's maybe what they were referencing a little bit oh I wouldn't doubt yeah. it because the Adams Family is not about vampires yeah. or any specific I mean, monster the, it's just the, like a gothic family yeah. as we'll talk about with the Adams house. Family the Adams Family was actually I think uh, a cartoon series don't spoil that, season two <laughs> Don't tell them. No, but no, I mean, they, the, yeah, they the were. Adams they were family a, was originally a, yeah, a, a but cartoon they're very series. steeped in they're steeped in gothic. 
yes, sensibilities. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And the monsters. I mean, the monsters. The like, monsters was the like same. Grandpapa is Dracula. I mean, yes. I thought that was that's a right. brilliant show. The old monsters. Yeah, I, the old I monsters. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and see, I grew up watching. My, my parents didn't necessarily watch. Let me watch the Adams Family a whole lot, but I watched a lot of the monsters, and I watched um, all of Bella Lugosi's uh, yeah. Dracula stuff. I eventually did. Like I said, I saw Nosferatu. Later, um, I saw. Uh, in, in grad school, I saw the remake of Nosferatu by uh, Werner Herzog. Oh yeah, yeah. Was and it I scary? Like the... Yes, very scary. That one. I mean, not very scary, but it is scary. It is scary. Okay. Yeah, it is a good one. And I like the the uh, the one done by um, oh who wrote it or who directed it. It's got um, oh it's called Shadow of the Vampire, where Willem Dafoe plays um, the shrek or whatever the guy's name max shrek who plays nosferatu and the idea was that um max shrek was actually a real vampire that they cast to play the vampire (laughs) so when you see him vanish at the end of the film that's really them killing him and it had um john malkovich and carrie elwes and like all these other actors in it and john malkovich was fw murnau and carrie he did more movies than Princess Bride he's, and yeah, uh, oh been, yeah, he's, we recently saw him in Black Christmas. Yeah, the, the remake of oh Black Christmas. Oh my god! You know, I yeah. saw him in that movie Saw, and yeah, I was like, "Holy yeah. shit! There he is!" After yeah, all yeah, these years. Right. Oh just, yeah, he's done lots of. Stuff. I didn't I know, know he was stuff. doing yeah. other stuff. He was. Have you ever? Seen, yeah. I love the guy. He was I in a Hot Shots. That guy. He was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was yeah. the Val Kilmer character in Hot Shots. Yeah. Oh my god! So excellent. So yeah. So I mean, yeah. My favorite though has to be the Simpsons um, Halloween Treehouse of Horror special. Oh, they draw with, so heavily on it. Don't their Halloween specials just always deliver? It's they always do and they every spoof, single time. Like they spoof yeah. the they spoof the Francis Ford Coppola uh, Dracula, which I so, think is like one. Homer's like taking him to dinner, and he's like, "We're going to dinner at my boss's house in Pennsylvania." Pennsylvania. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that uh, Francis Ford Coppola's movie is is one of the best representations. I love of, that movie, of Dracula. The Coppolanian interpretation. I think that movie is is it's so incredibly good. Coppola is so good anyway about. I mean, just well. Speaking his of the objective correlative, framing, his setting, his cinematography is bu- beautiful. Mm-hmm. His costumes, and he did a good job of bringing in and reminding us that Dracula is that historical figure because because um, yeah, he, he what's his name is made to look like the historical yeah. figure with the long hair and the mustache. And, yeah, the intro yeah. to that movie even places him as it, the, yeah, the great warlord him. with that like weird muscle that suit weird, going on. Yeah, that red. Can muscle we talk armor. about that? What the, what was that? I don't know, but I'm here for it. Dude, I mean, it, it was, was kind of cool. great. <laughs> I know. Cool. I, th- I think it's just like it looked like the 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 flay like a flayed human. being. I was gonna right? say it, to me, it was like, whoa, this guy is so obsessed with peeling people's skin off. He wants to like. <laughs> I he, mean, he that, wants to look like it, muscle tissue. But I think like, it, it's also um, for one, it's very sensuous. You know, like like the sinuous. idea of. Um, sinuous, yeah, sinuous, sinuous it. in a way. No, but I think it, it's we play with like, words because on the it's it's very sculpted, right? Yeah. Um, but also it's intimidating because you know Dracula was a, an intimidating and who dude. Who the hell and, else dresses like that? Yeah, it makes yeah. him look like. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's like, I don't know, guys. I re-listened to our episode. He wasn't that intimidating. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's like NC-17. Like we have explicit episodes, and then we have an episode that's rated NC-17. Yeah. That's definitely our NC-17 episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah just yeah. brace yourself and um, see what wow. you get. Uh, <laughs> but I think I think that you know. 
I think that Dracula is just so influential in a lot of like cultural adaptation. You know, we see all of these innovations or, or these like like trying to renovate an old house. They represent to us, you know, Dracula in a new light. And it's always so very interesting because you can't necessarily divorce all of our cultural knowledge of Dracula from the new stuff that comes out that is Dracula because it's all so interconnected. Right. You know, when you talk about something like Fright Night or you talk about something like um, The Lost Boys, right? In or some way, like shape, or form. Days of night. Yeah, like they, they lean back so heavily on what we already know either about vampires or about Dracula as a figure. Yeah. And they continue to, I think, just kind of like multiply into these these many different representations. Whether we get a Dracula who looks just like Bela Lugosi or who looks like the more traditional Nosferatu or who look, looks like um, whoever that dude is, uh, the, the, the <laughs> interview with a vampire character, Lestat. Lestat, yeah. You know, I mean, we have we have video games where you play Dracula's son Alucard. Right, <laughs> we have a Castlevania a, a, is a whole video game series yes. where you, you the whole objective is you confront Dracula. Castlevania is an anime series. Now. I mean, even things even things that aren't uh, directly vampires or anything like yeah. that. You can't really and you can't really say that it wasn't influenced by yeah, Dracula. I mean, it's, it's the so Avengers, Avengers director and uh, father of the. The early MCU in that phase one. I mean, I would I would almost call him. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Joss Whedon got his start with not just the the crappy movie, but then the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, Buffy was a, a I mean, huge which influence. was gender swapping. And, and I, yes, yeah, yeah, that was where she. Yeah, truly, truly gender swapping. Let's have the that, cheerleader attack the monsters kind of deal. And that's kind of a cool thought, right? Yeah. That, uh, well, I, I think what's so fascinating to me is like. Just how international these these ideas become. Yeah. You know, I, when we talk about like Castlevania, Castlevania comes from Konami, a Japanese company. Um, yeah, but I right. love that video game and I love the music on that first, like those early video games. Oh, I was going to mention yes. the music. Is oh, the music crazy. is crazy. They're, they're incredible. Uh, I've got it memorized, honestly. There's also like a whole <laughs> anime series called yeah, Helsing. On Netflix, right? Yeah. Um, and Helsing was a, it's a, about a vampire. A vampire hunter, um, and so we see this cross pollination of ideas. It's not just that Bram Stoker's Dracula was influential in English literature, but I think that we see that it influenced other kinds of vampire fiction, even outside of the English speaking world. Yeah, and I mean, that that is just I think that's rare, amazing. That is very rare for a single work of art to to have that kind of profound effect. Yeah. I think. And we, that's why we don't need guardians telling people to don't read this because it's not good enough or whatever. Yeah. Cause you don't know what it's going to do uh, centuries later. You know? Yeah. You don't know what, how I mean, it's I've, I've out, read right? some of the classics that they like to push and, and some of those, those things. And, and you know, like um, grapes of wrath or, which is a really good book. I love that book. Um, One of, top 10 books. Like for people me. like in high school, they like to push catcher in the rye and I'm sorry, but to me, Dracula is much more nuanced than Holland Caulfield and catcher in the rye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, I think there's a place for reading Holden Caulfield yeah, in, there is. in school, but I also think that there's, there's a lot more space, right, to read stuff like Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the things influenced by it. Um, 
So I don't know. I guess my final question as we wrap up is, is I don't know. I, I think about where I'd like to see this go. And for me, guys, I think I have two two ways I'd like to see this kind of evolve. One is get back to the original myths, like, like we talked about in the first episode, because mm-hmm. I think that would be cool. But then yeah. I thought of something else as you were talking about how we can't like totally erase like how it's affected pop culture as we keep moving forward. A much like Wes Craven did with like Scream in um, the the late mid to late nineties, mm-hmm. that meta kind of deconstruction of the horror film as he reinvented it. I would love to see somebody do that with a piece of vampire fiction where they meta kind of deconstruct vampire fiction and pop culture vampires even as they're redefining it and creating it for a new audience. I'm sure we will see That'd that. Be fascinating. That would be very postmodern. I that feel would like be that very would be very on brand with a lot of postmodern. I mean throughout I the rest so. of our lives we're likely to not we're likely to see never-ending reiterations of this type of thing. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And it's exciting yeah. to think about what it might look like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think very hopefully, at least from my perspective, I've seen that a lot of genre fiction nowadays really is trying to lean back on um, kind of non-Western, if that's even a thing, <laughs> uh, representation of, of myth or mythology. Right, right. And mm-hmm. I am very hopeful that there are going to be some writers who come in and very seriously try to tackle some of this other mythology, you know, the mythology that isn't so Eurocentric. Yeah. And and yeah. I hope, right, give us kind of a greater tapestry of vampiric violence <laughs> than, you know, maybe we've seen in the last century. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. That is it, everybody. That is our season. That is our five-episode jaunt into vampire fiction to Bram Stoker's Dracula that was man what a freaking journey what a ride I can't do that on a weekly basis guys that was- <laughs> no this was a lot of research this I mean we recorded more hours I think on just this series than almost any of our other episodes yeah yeah this series is almost as long as the rest of the season combined <laughs> yeah almost I mean I, it's uh, probably I not quite I don't but, know that it's that close yeah, yeah, but yeah. it feels like it it's feels that like close. it <laughs> Um, we've got a big season two planned. We've already started planning season two. We are going to take a little bit of a break. I think we come back first part of March uh, yeah. for airing. Um, and, of course, we'll be in the studio recording before that. Uh, until then, we have the anthology out. You guys are, are recognizing it. You're seeing it. You're buying it. You're reading it. Love to hear your thoughts on it on social media. Um, we have the novel out. We're going to have a call for submissions out this this February. Um we're also going to be in the middle of a call for a special, uh, a call for special submissions for an audio a story to use for audio, uh, an audio story, as well as put into Tales of Slayhouse 2022. So watch for details on our social media accounts and on, on the website if that's something that you're interested in and you would like to hear your story read by us, by the the Slayhouse crew. And, uh, and put out as a podcast. So Yep. And uh, we have a lot of things planned, and we're just really excited to get this moving forward. So um, we have StokerCon coming up in May. I'd be very happy right. to be attending that. And we just uh, we can't wait. We're very thankful for all of you. We're thankful to our Wayne Howard Studios uh, producers. We are, um, we're thankful to all of our supporters on Patreon, and we're thankful to all yeah. of our listeners, all of our people following us on social media. Um, we love you guys. Keep it up. We'll see you next season. I just got a text. I got one too.
Oh shit! It's did from we Charles. All, did we all just sure. get texts? I think from we Charles? did. How, How did Charles you even Slay? get Curtis's number? Uh, That's I a good don't question. think I gave it to him. I didn't give it. Well, maybe. What does it say? It says Genevieve's in town. Oh shit.